0: Today is the third and final part of our sermon series on restoring first love. Uh, A brief recap for those who are joining us for the first time. The first week, we talked about how it's impossible to love God unless we're first undone by the revelation that God loves us first. He is relentless. He is jealous for his church and his people. And once we receive that love first, only then are we able to love others and love God. Now, the second week, we talked about what kind of response this calls for. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, you know, about like you love Jesus and it's all internal. It's not just that. It, it calls for a response, a remembering from the heights from which we've fallen and then turning around. In other words, um, repentance, letting go of what we need to let go of in order for us to get our hearts right before God once again. And in the same way that the sorcerers, we talked about the sorcerers in the the city of Ephesus last week, like they went through great lengths and great extents to show that they were actually repentant. Um, They, you know, they happened to burn their sorcery scrolls that were amounting to 5.5 million to 1.5 billion dollars. So they did the sacri- They made the sacrificial step in order for them to fully turn, not halfway, not lukewarm, in order for them to truly be repentant before the Lord. And we asked the question, what would it look like for us as a church as well to burn our scrolls? What is the invitation into consecration that God is calling us into? And how it is that we want to begin to build this church in a place of having our first love in first place. And so today will be our last kind of installment of uh, this sermon series, we'll be talking about the rewards for those who heed. And now the, the back story to this whole series is actually coming from something that happened about two years ago. It actually dates back to a lot longer ago, but one of the clearest signs that we had uh, that the Lord was calling us to repent as a house and return to our first love was a speaker that came for one of our leadership retreats about two years ago. I'm um, sorry two years ago and he preached about the beauty of Christ. He preached about Christ's return the worth of this man and in his last message, he actually gave us a prophetic warning from the book of Revelation. He said, do you know what a loveless church looks like? It looks like when young people stop attending. It looks like when your prayer life begins to dry up when it feels like it's events after events after events. Um, it feels like it 's a lot of duties and responsibilities, but there 's very little joy and wonder and and um, thanksgiving in your service. Um, he also said that you have you still have enough machinery to keep things running, so you can actually be dry and have lost your first love for a long time before you actually realize that you left that a long time ago, and so that 's the point at which we are at as a church right now in his love and in his mercy. God will refuse to multiply a loveless church. And this is God's mercy. Can you imagine? This is, for me, this is one of my fears. I, I fear a lot of things. But one of the worst fears that I have in life is, like, what if we were to do ministry for 20 years? And only 20 years after would we realize, wow, this entire thing was not about God at all. Like, this thing was all about our egos, our reputation, our ministry, our platform. And we have wasted 20 years where we could have been giving glory to God. We could have advanced the kingdom, and we've lost those 20 years when we could have built the kingdom of God instead. And so that is, that is a fear of mine. I, I'm okay with a lot of adjustments, a lot of whatever needs to happen for us to be right and take the right steps forward. But can you imagine going down full speed ahead for 20 years in the wrong direction? Like that is such a waste, and that is one of the, the things that I don't want to see a church going through. And so this is why we're taking the time. Um, Right now, to actually set the trajectory right, we are learning this firsthand right now. Our church is at a crossroads. And how we choose to respond in this season, it will set the trajectory for the next season. Will we go through the discomfort? Will we go through the repentance? Will we go through the sacrifice necessary for us to go back and be on the right track? And so we'll be revisiting the passage of Scripture that we've been going through Um, For the last two weeks, this will be the last time you see this afterwards. You don't need to see it ever again. Um, This is a letter written to the Church of Ephesus. It's one of the most influential, one of the most affluent churches of its time. It is currently now just a heap of ruins, and it's in um, current-day Turkey right now. And this is a letter written by Jesus, basically, and addressed to the church in in the city of Ephesus. It says... These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So the first thing Jesus does is he acknowledges their perseverance, their commitment to right doctrine, their discernment, their grit to stay in the fight and remain true to God in the midst of a culture that openly defies God. So it's not an easy thing to do. It's not a a thing that is for the faint of heart. And Jesus starts off by commending them for this. But there's one thing that has crept into the Ephesian church. If you were to think about it this way, I picture it almost like if you had a building that had um, kind of rafters and a skeleton made of wood, and if you had a termite infestation that begins to make holes in all of this wood framework, it's only a matter of time before this whole thing crumbles down. So it doesn't matter how much you pile up on top or how many additions you have, how many additional rooms and parking lots you build around it. If the foundation if the skeleton of it has holes, it's all going to collapse. The more you, actually, the more you build up on it, the more actually is at stake in falling down. So that's the way that I like to think about it. Jesus is putting his finger on something really crucial that if it's not fixed, it's going to make the entire building collapse. And this is what he says. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So we often dismiss this as, like, come on, yeah, let's be real. You can't get everything down right. You know, maybe once things settle down, then we'll get our first love right. Or, like, maybe I'm doing so much kingdom work, so much evangelism, so much outreach, that kind of outweighs the fact that I've kind of forgotten my first love. You know, we think we can negotiate on, on this. Whereas Jesus doesn't seem to be under the impression that it's something that's negotiable. He seems to see this as a very serious problem and one that is a life or death issue for the church. And so in the season, I sense that the Holy Spirit is making this a primary matter for us as a church. He's saying, don't move on just yet. Don't go into autopilot and start building the church and going a thousand miles an hour in one direction unless you've set this right in your heart right now. This is an issue of the state of your heart, and it isn't a peripheral issue. First Corinthians, you know, it warns us. It says, like, you, you can have the, the greatest gifts in the world. You can prophesy. You can speak the tongues of men and angels. You can discern the mysteries of the world. You can be a selfless, like Mother Teresa times a million. Like, you can give up your body to serve the poor, to do everything in the kingdom of God. But if you have not love, you are nothing. If you don't get this thing straight... You're a clanging symbol. You gain nothing. You are nothing. And so this is a really, really important place for us to camp out at for a long time. And so he exhorts us to number one, repent. Uh, Sorry, number one, remember, and second, repent. And we talked about this last week, the call to remember and repent. The Ephesian Church was a church that stopped at nothing initially to get right before God. It it wasn't a show of religious piety, like look how many scrolls I'm burning compared to yours. It wasn't a competition of who was more hardcore and grandiose in their demonstration of repentance. It was broken men and women doing whatever they needed to do, even at great financial loss, for them to be right before God. They weren't playing this game of who's more religious. They weren't playing this game of who shows more repentance, who grovels more before the Lord. It wasn't a game for them. It was a life or death issue, and they did whatever and needed they needed to do in order to be right with the Lord. They didn't want to dance around the line of what is gray, what is acceptable, what is technically sin, what isn't. They weren't doing that. They were running in the opposite direction towards the Lord. And so this is a portion that we'll be honing in on today. We're going to begin um, with Revelation 2-7, and it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So at the beginning of the series, I shared that this issue of returning to our first love, it isn't just a feel good exhortation to get back on your quiet times or something. It's, it's, there's an urgency that I feel in my spirit to get this right. Like there are things that we don't even understand further down the line that are at stake right now. We don't even understand what, what is at stake. There's so many things that hinge on the fact of whether we're uh, willing to go back to the first love or not. And those who dismiss this matter as a purely emotional endeavor, like, okay, I just need to sing love songs to Jesus and then we'll be on the right track. Let me make something really clear. It has everything to do with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of those heart, your emotions, soul, with all your volition. Mind with all your intellect and all your understanding and strength with all your passion and all your zeal. All those things are required to love the Lord. It's not just your heart. It's not just your mind. It's not just how passionate and zealous you are. It's not about what decisions you make and what volition you exercise. It is all of those. And that is what is required to love the Lord. So it means that there is a groundedness and an understanding in the word. There's a call to action in repentance. There's a following of emotions. There's an understanding that lukewarmness is disproportionate or actually inappropriate as a posture of the heart. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This exhortation is actually repeated seven times in two chapters. For every single church that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation, he says this over and over and over again. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It isn't because Jesus just copy-pasted, like he kind of ran out of creativity. It's Jesus saying, you are not listening. Seven times over. He's saying, you are not listening. You, you think you're listening, but you're actually not listening. So let me ask you a very simple question: Are you listening for what the Spirit is saying? Are you listening for what the Spirit is saying? Because often our complaint to the Lord is, "God weren't you speaking right? This is very true when we need immediate answers, right or like should I date this person? Should I take this job? Should I move to this country and that 's when Jesus is On a timeline, like he has a due date, like you, you, you give him an ultimatum and you want him to speak on your own terms. But often what we mean when we say, God, why aren't you speaking is God, why aren't you speaking when I want you to, or God, why aren't you speaking on my terms and in my schedule? Why aren't you answering the way that I want you to answer? So we're like we have the attention span of like a gnat, right? Like, like really, really short attention span. We're like, God, if you don't show up in 30 seconds, I'm moving on to my next appointment. Like, right? We give him a 30 second window and we expect God to be like, all right, all right, you know, let me come on your own terms. But that's not the way that, that God works. Sometimes he will, but like, you know, we want God to speak on our own terms, according to our own schedule. We want him to fall in line. We want him to serve us and not the other way around. And that's just not the way God works. God speaks on his own terms, in his own way. And once he does speak, he gives you the answer that he wants, actually. So sometimes we're like, all right, God speak. And he speaks. And you're like, no, no, not that answer. A different one. <laughs> like, let's do a re- like redo. No, God is not a slave to our desires and our whims and our schedule it's actually the other way around right let me ask you in a conversation between you and god who is the more important thing to say sometimes we act like we we got like lord let me tell you paragraph a like we start from the top and go all the way to the bottom and we don't ever let god like get in a word we, we feel like it's about us. It's like a one-way conversation and God has nothing to say about the matter. And that's kind of how we treat our prayer life. It's like verbal vomiting towards the Lord and we're hoping that something sticks, you know? We're just hoping, that's the way that we treat prayer. But servants and prophets of old, they had a fear of God, a reverence and an attentiveness. They made themselves available for God to speak on his own terms. They weren't like, look, God, I have an appointment coming up, so you better speak up. Um, or like, yeah, I, I need an answer for this immediate request right now. Never mind what you're actually trying to address right now. That's deeper and actually more like deeply rooted in my heart right now. Let's we'll talk about this later, but I actually need an answer for this right now. You know, they didn't do that. They sat before the Lord. They quieted their hearts. They engineered the entire life around being able to hear the word of God. They allowed the spirit to deal with the agendas in their hearts. And then they simply said, speak Lord, I'm listening. That is the approach that they had towards the Lord. You know, part of me wonders how things might have panned out for our church if we had hit the brakes at least two years ago. If we had said, "All right, this is this is important right now. We got to hear. We need to have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We're going to hit the brakes. We're going to pause everything, and we're going to make this a matter of utmost importance." Part of me wonders what would have happened then if we hadn't been so like. We're just plowing on. God, I hope you catch up with us, you know? We're just, like, on our own schedule, on our own agenda. And if we had stopped two years ago, I think, um, at least two years ago, to hear what the Spirit says to church, I think maybe we'd be in a very different place right now. Now, I, I, I know we can't, we can't ask ourselves, like, what if, what if, what if. Um, until, you know, we can do that. But what matters actually right now is that we're being given an opportunity to turn right now. Right. If we miss our opportunity two years ago, we're being given a fresh new opportunity right now. And what matters right now is that we do have an ear to let the spirit speak to us. We're being given an opportunity right now to get our affairs in order and get our hearts right before the Lord. Now, the next part, it reads to him who overcomes pause. Pause. Pause right there. So so to him who overcomes, this means that there's going to be a fight. This means it's going to be a struggle. It's not going to be just casually wandering into first love. It's going to take adjustment. It's going to take reprioritizing, recalibrating, reorganizing things in your life. It's going to be a wrestle and a struggle. And it's not going to be easy because your heart staying on fire for the Lord is not going to be a casual thing. It's not going to be a byproduct of of, of whatever. It's going to require a fight. You're going to have to battle distractions. You're going to have to battle apathy. You're going to have to battle bitterness. You're going to have to actively engage in war against these things. We think that in our current day and age, we are being bombarded by so many different things, so many different influences, so many different almost like... um, we're preachers, right? Like, but not not of God, but of the world, right? And we're being fed all these different things all day, all day, every day, and we're like, "All right, the only way to offset this is a 30-minute message on Sunday." Oh, we're we're in deep trouble. Like, this is not going to fix your life. I'm sorry if that was expectation. I'm not that great of a preacher. Like, I'm not going to fix your life in 30 minutes. This is going to take a daily struggle, a warring to stay right with the Lord every single day. And this is because it's not the default of our hearts. Our hearts tend to wander. Our hearts tend to look at other things that look like they will give us more immediate gratification. This looks more fun. This looks like it's going to give me greater gratification. Uh, returns and more quickly. This looks like, you know, I can put off these other things in order to pursue that. And I don't know if it really, you know, it, it kind of overlaps into what it should be doing and not be doing. But, you know, we make all these different compromises and we're hoping we're going to somehow miraculously land in the right place where we're on fire for the Lord. And that's just not how it works. It is a struggle. It is a battle. And this is why we need to be very aware of this. There's temptation, temptation, There's apathy, there's offense, there's distraction. Oh, did I say distraction again? I was distracted. Um, (laughs) Or double distraction, I guess. Um, There's all these different things that we have to battle against. And so it's not going to happen just automatically. This is why we also need one another. This is why we also need a community around us. When we grow tired, when we grow weary, we need somebody else to cheer us on. We need somebody else to encourage us and remind us, like, this is a path that you've chosen. Let's keep running. You're not alone. We're going to do this together. Unless we begin to fall into the deception that it's actually based on our own needs. Like, okay, I'm going to overcome by sheer willpower. Like, I'm going to set my life straight. Just in case we fall into that deception that it's according to our works that we're able to overcome, this word actually comes up 10 chapters later in Revelation chapter 12, and it talks about a church— The church of God in the end times that overcomes the devil. And it is only by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is what it looks like to overcome. It looks like when you get rid of all the idols in your heart. And the church has been rid of all her compromise to the point where they are ready to lay down their lives for Christ. I don't know about you guys, but I love my life too much to as, as much as I I shrink from discomfort, let alone death. Like discomfort is like, oh, it's too much for me. Like, I love my life too much. I love myself, my interests, my agendas too much. But the word of the Lord says that in the end times, the church of God is going to look very different. She'll be willing to lay down her life because of love. They'll be willing to go through the most painful, most torturous times that history has ever seen. Not because of their willpower. Not because of their good discipline and their good intentions or their good strategy. It is because they remained anchored in the place of first love. They've overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony to him who overcomes. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, you're like, all this just for a tree. <laughs> you know? This is a reward I get at the end. I just I get a tree. Uh, so where have we seen this tree before? Right. The first time it ever comes up in scripture is in Genesis 2. Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Often when we kind of think about the creation story and we think about the Garden of Eden, we only think about the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil. But there's something else that's also the focal point of the Garden of Eden, and that is the tree of life. The time and the place where God and man walk together in the cool of day. There's perfect communion between God and man without disruption, without agenda, without sin. It speaks of the restoration of all that was lost in the fall. It speaks of healing and reclaiming of all that was broken beyond repair. The chasm, the abyss that opened up between man and God. At the fall, all of that being restored. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the tree of life. The last time the tree of life shows up in scripture is in Revelation 22. It's the last chapter of the Bible. It talks about the new heavens and the new earth. We see a river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb down the middle of the greatest, the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. They'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night and they will reign forever and ever. So it's not just something that we're looking back to nostalgically. It's something that we look forward to in faith and in trust that God will be true to his word. It's a culmination of all things. The end that was prophesied from the very beginning. The future that awaits a church, a future where we don't need the light, the the sunlight anymore because the glory of the Lord will be so present, so near, so tangible that there won't even be night. We'll be dwelling in the same place as the Lord in his full glory. Right now, we see only dimly as in a mirror. That day we'll see fully and perfectly. And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the tree of life. It's not... Just about a tree. It's not just about a fruit. It's talking about perfect communion once again with God. If you were to think about the most, the single most powerful moment you ever had with the Lord on this side of eternity, like that one moment when when God just met you, like He met you, and it didn't matter where it was or who was looking, He just met you, and like you were just never the same again. You felt like, I will never forget this. Like, this is going to mark my life. And then two weeks pass and you've forgotten, right? But like that single most powerful moment with the Lord, if you, were, if you were to think that that is just seen dimly as in a mirror, this is only a shadow of what we'll get to experience all the time. For eternity future, that is what we're talking about. This is the reward that awaits those who overcome. And the one determining factor on which all of this hinges for the Ephesian church is whether they choose to return to their first love or not. The reward awaiting those who heed what the Spirit is saying to the churches, the ones who are willing to get into the wrestle and the struggle of keeping their hearts right before the Lord, that is what awaits them. It's a future with the Lord that is more glorious than we can ever understand, ever understand. And this is something that I've had on my heart, you know, for, for years now, if I were to get a little bit personal outside of you know, helping shepherd here, Hongde, one of the things that I also devote my time and my ministry to is a house of prayer ministry. And it's not about how many songs you sing. It's not about how many prayers you pray, it's a two-hour slot in the middle of the week where God confronts your heart. That's all that happens. It's like you can wander far from the Lord, but he's going to reel you back. And those two hours, like you have nowhere to hide. Like there's just nowhere to hide from the Lord, and he will deal with you. If there's hardness in your heart, he'll, he'll melt it away, or he'll rebuke it, or he'll break it. He'll do something. And for someone like me who's doing ministry, this has been a lifeline for me. I can, I'm not talking about like, guys come out to the prayer, you know, prayer tab. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm telling you, like, I would not have made it out well for the last, especially for the last year and a half, unless I had that time with the Lord where God would reel me back into where I need to be. And for me, for someone like me who has zero self-discipline and I have like zero like willpower, I need, I needed it to be inbuilt into my rhythm of life. So I needed it to be inconvenient. I needed it to be in the middle of the week. I needed it to be consistent where I can't not show up because I'm I'm running it, right? <laughs> so I can't not show up. It's my job, right? And so God in his sovereignty built it into my weekly schedule. Four hours a week. Two hours on Wednesday, two hours on Thursday. Susie, you're gonna deal with me. If you've become pr- prideful, pride proudful, <laughs> prideful, prideful if you've become bitter, if you've become anxious, you're going to deal with me. We're going to talk. And there's nowhere to hide. And I can't thank the Lord enough for that time. Now, I would love to challenge all of you guys to come out at least once. If your schedule doesn't work, you make something work. Like whether it be carving out a time in your weekly schedule to just get with the Lord in your own bedroom. It doesn't need to be here. It doesn't, You don't need to, to have a band up there. Like, it can just be you and the Lord, but make it a priority. Don't let it be the first thing to go when you get busy. Don't let it be the first thing to go when, like, oh, somebody's visiting from out of town and, like, I actually have this event. And, like, you want to shape things around that sacred time that you have for the Lord. And so whatever it takes, if it means coming out to the prayer watch, come out to a prayer watch. If it means getting together with your roommates and having a time of devotionals together, do that. If it means during your commute. And this is the only time you can do it. The 30 minutes that you're cramped in a bus, like, okay, then like get ready. As soon as you step on that bus, it's your meeting time with the Lord and make that a priority. But what I'm saying to you is that it's not going to happen casually. It's not going to happen accidentally. It needs to be a decision and it needs to be a commitment. And what I can say from having been a part of the house of prayer for the last seven years is that it is the most rewarding Thing i've ever been a part of the last seven years there's been a lot of really good things but i can tell you that the last seven years if i were to think about all the hours that i devoted to just sitting before the lord without an agenda just saying lord i'm here i'm here for you i'm laying everything else aside i just want to worship you i want to minister to your heart i want to hear what's on your heart i want to pray what's on your heart that was been my only agenda for those four hours a week just that in itself Thank you. Just that in itself has done wonders. It has done wonders to my ability to just stay grounded and rooted. No matter what happens, you have to go back to that place of God dealing with your heart. And you have nowhere to turn. And you cannot hide. And you cannot pretend like God sees through all those things. And the more I've done that over the years, the quicker that turn has become for me. The shorter that tether you know, like, you wander. I used to wander a long ways. Now it's, like, shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And that, that, like, almost intuitive reaction that has been slowly inbuilt into me of, like, when I'm feeling, like, I feel like I'm going down a path of anxiety, the quicker the turn. Like, that is a learned behavior. This is not something that just happens accidentally as well. So the longer I've done this for, the more I've devoted myself to this, the more I made it a priority, the quicker the turnaround, the longer the time I spend with the Lord and the the shorter I spend away from the Lord and the shorter that tether I feel like it becomes. Like I can't run really far anymore. I, I can't. Just God deals with me very quickly now. And that has become a learned behavior over time. When you feel like you're straying from the Lord, turn. When you feel like... Your life has become crowded by all these different things. You turn. You do whatever it takes to carve out some time and spend with the Lord. And so this is something that I wanted to exhort everybody with. Whatever it takes, rearrange your schedule. Rearrange your priorities. Do whatever it takes to spend some time with the Lord. You will not regret it. You will not regret it. The more you will do this, the more you realize that He is actually worth that time. Sometimes I walk into a prayer watch, and I'm like, the last thing I want to do right now is worship. Like, really, (laughs) I have so many things on my plate. Like, I I really don't want to worship right now. And then the Lord, I don't know how he does it, but within those two hours, like, he just changes my heart. He reminds me that he is worthy. He reminds me that he is worthy of my trust, worthy of my time, worthy of my affections that it's not time that is lost, time that could have been invested differently. I always walk away from this too. I was thinking like, I would not trade this in for the world. There's nothing else that I would have traded this in for. And so whatever that looks like, guard that time with the Lord. Guard it. No amount of preaching is going to do that for you. No one can walk your walk with the Lord. No amount of discipleship even is going to fix that. You need to, you need to, Relate and connect with the Lord. I cannot do that for you. No one can do that for you. Your discipler can do that for you. Your your campus director can't do that for you. You yourself have to get acquainted with the Lord, build history together. This is your walk with your God, and you need to take some of your time to make that a priority. I want us to challenge. Uh, I want to challenge us with something um, as I come to a close, we've talked about for the last three weeks, we've talked about what it looks like to turn and to repent and go back to our first love. And I wanted to end the sermon series with a time where we get to dream with one another once again. So two years ago, we were asked the question, what does it look like when a church loses their first love? So the question that I want to ask today is what does it look like when a church has gone back to their first love? What does the state of her heart look like? What does her worship sound like? What do her prayers sound like? What does her life outside of these four walls look like? What do her relationships look like? How does she handle adversity? How does she handle conflict? Is she distracted or is she focused? Is she bitter or is she tender? Is she filled with anxiety or is she filled with confidence and faith? What does it look like when a church gets gripped once again by first love?